Okay, guys, uh, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 6 today. We're just going to look at five verses, verses 4 to 8, and these are very important verses, very controversial verses. And as we begin, I want to remind you again, who is the letter written to? Anybody remember? Yeah, what type of Jews? To the Mosaic system, okay? So I want you to keep that in the back of your mind. If you have that in the back of your mind, you'll be able to understand this passage. If you don't have that in your mind, you're going to be opening yourself up to various interpretations, okay? So let's look at the passage together, and then I'm going to give you four verses, I mean four views of what this passage means. And then at the end of giving you the four views, I'm going to tell you where I'm at. That's something you're going to need to wrestle with, and then we'll look in particular at the four verses. So let's look the five verses. Let's look at uh, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it, and bears herbs useful for those by, by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected, and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Wow! What is that about? Well, maybe you've heard some things through the years as far as possible interpretations. Maybe you have your own viewpoint here. So I'm going to present to you four viewpoints. We'll kind of talk about them each a little bit here. And we'll kind of go from there. The first viewpoint is is that the four phrases of verses 4 to 5, you'll notice there's four phrases there, describe a believer. So it's a Christian losing his salvation. So when you look at those four phrases there, let me read you those four phrases. The first view, the view of those who believe that you can lose your salvation, basically says that it's impossible for those who were once enlightened, that's the first phrase, have, be, have tasted the heavenly gift, second phrase, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, third phrase, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's the fourth phrase. This viewpoint basically feels that that's describing somebody who's experienced salvation. All right? Someone who's experienced salvation. Now, who holds this view? Typically Methodists do. If uh, you're from a Wesleyan Methodist background, you would hold this view that you could possibly lose your salvation. Nazarenes, which comes out of Wesleyanism, holds this view. There are some Pentecostal groups that hold this view because they come out of Wesleyanism. And before Charles West, John and Charles Wesley, it's, it's really an Arminian viewpoint. The, the concept is, is that you can lose your salvation. So you'll hear, and, and when you talk to people, you, you, you'll, be hear, you'll hear them describe salvation as going to the altar, and they'll talk about being at the altar many times and making things right. This is the viewpoint that if you sin, 
you'll lose your salvation. The, the difficulty with that is, is that the problem is, is with this viewpoint is, is that we all sin every day, right? Which sins disqualify you? Do you understand what I'm saying? So then you've got to get into a discussion as to which are the bad sins, do you know what I'm saying, and which are not. All right? The next one is, is the writer seems to illustrate a person who seemed to be a Christian but was not. So when you talk about these four phrases, the key thing is these four phrases. Let's look at them together. It seems to be talking about somebody who was involved in the life of the church. What do you mean? Look at the first phrase. It's impossible for those who were once enlightened. What is that? They had their understanding open to the gospel. That happens when you come to church. okay? Who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? They've tasted the experience of the Holy Spirit in their midst. When, if, even if you're an unsafe person, and if you come to church, and the Holy Spirit's alive in that church, you're, gonna, you're going to experience that yourself. Who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. That is, of course, again, the work of the Holy Spirit in the group. And then tasted the good work of God and the powers of the age to come. Again, that's somebody who's experiencing what's going on within the co- context of the congregation. But that does that mean that they're saved? Simply because they come and experience all of that, does that mean they're saved? Anybody? No. Okay, because stop for a moment. There was a guy who followed Jesus for three years, who tasted everything as far as experience with Jesus, and maybe even did some of the things with him. Who was that? Judas. Was he a believer? No, because he, what, betrayed Christ. So this viewpoint seems to illustrate a person who seems to be a Christian but was not. The third viewpoint is is that the passage is hypothetical with the meaning of if it were possible. So it's, it's kind of like the author is giving a hypothetical. If you would leave, it's impossible for you to come back is what he's saying. It's almost like the author doesn't believe you can leave, but he's just throwing the hypothetical out there. I I think that's weak, all right? I think that's a weak point here grammatically. That doesn't seem to be what he's talking about, especially in light of some of the things he said before. And then the fourth view is is that this passage speaks to Hebrew believers forsaking Jesus to return to the Mosaic system. So it's talking about those giving up on following Jesus as the means for their salvation and going back to the Mosaic system and making the continual sacrifices. It's saying that Jesus is not enough. So those are the four viewpoints. Now let me give you my viewpoint. My viewpoint is number two and number four. My viewpoint is number two and number four. My viewpoint is number four because I think that's specifically who he's writing to right here. I think as far as its relevance to you and I today, I think that number two is probably even more stronger for us. Why? Why do you say that, George? Because I think of the testimony throughout Scripture, especially the New Testament, where it talks about that there are unbelievers among us. 
and they leave. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, they'll, they'll go strong for a while, and then they leave, and they just kind of go off on a deep end. So the reality is, is that there, there are people who make professions, but they don't have possession. Do you understand what I'm saying? There are people who make profession, but that doesn't mean possession. All right? What, how you know their life, in fact, if you want to, Matthew chapter 7 is a great chapter for you to read. How you will know their life is by what their life bears in their life. Do you understand what I'm saying? Whether or not they're exhibiting in their life the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Whether or not they're producing in their life or if really if how their lifestyle is. Now, you don't do for salvation, but when you get saved, it changes you. Does everybody understand? So now we're going to go through the, so we're going to go through these verses, verses four through eight, and really look at the whole issue of turning away. And what exactly is he saying here? And so I want you to keep these four views in your back, in your mind. This is a very important uh, passage of scripture for you to understand. Because some of you, for instance, you have friends who are from a Methodist background, right? Okay? And Methodism, uh, in, in, its, in, its, in its basic theological underpinnings, would say that you can lose your salvation. All right? That John Wesley held to that. All right? And so with Methodism, as well as with the other holiness perspectives, so how you lived your life and how holy you were was very important. That's why they're called holiness churches. All right? It was all about how you lived your life and what you didn't do and where you didn't go and you didn't park in certain places. You know, like, uh, you know, you don't want to park in front of the liquor store because somebody might think you're in the liquor store, you know, you know that type of thing, you know. And, and those kind of, you're, you're, some of you are like, really? You'd be surprised. Just the appearance. And that's the, you know, that's what they would quote is you don't want to have the what? The appearance of evil. Some of you know the verse I'm talking about. You've heard it, right? You know, the appearance of evil. So, so let's look here. Let's look, first of all, verses 4 and 5. He's going to describe this group. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All right, so let's talk about their description here. First of all, enlightened. To be enlightened is a natural way to refer to a conversion experience. So to be enlightened is a natural way to refer to a conversion experience. So, for instance, if you could think back, like I became a believer when I was 19. Before that, you know, I read the Bible. I had, it had no understanding to me. I, mean, I didn't know what I was reading. Do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't know what it, it didn't make sense to me. But after I made that commitment to follow Jesus Christ in April of 1985, everything opened up. My mind opened up to understand what was going on there. I was enlightened at salvation. Did you understand what I'm saying? So it means that you were enlightened. So some of you can think back, if you if you came to Christ, especially if you came to Christ later in life, 
You, you understand that whole concept. Now, if you're a five-year-old and you come to Jesus, that, that's not going to make any sense to you because a five-year-old trying to read the Bible, they're not going to understand it either. So, uh, but the point is, is that it, it has the, te- the, refer- the phrasal here of at a conversion experience. So the word enlightened is also used in Hebrews 10.32, referring to a true Christian experience. All right, so let's look now. Tasted the heavenly gift. The word tasted means to experience something as in the phrase tasted death. Okay, so it means to experience something. So sometimes you'll see somebody said they tasted death. You ever heard somebody that statement before? That's the same way the word tasted is used here. It's the same word. Alright? So it means to experience something as in the phrase tasted death. So to taste the heavenly gift means to experience salvation. Okay, so let's go on then. Here's the next one. The next phrase there is partakers of the Holy Spirit. This refers to those who have experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, that could be in a salvation experience. However, I think the way the word is used here is actually means a lot broader sense of that. So when you come into church and you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through individuals as they exercise their gifts, that also means that you've partaken in the Holy Spirit. You've partaken in His ministry. Do you understand what I'm saying? So it's not just in the broad sense of the salvation experience, but in the experience of the whole body coming together. Does everybody understand? So then, finally, the the fourth phrase there he uses as far as their description is tasted good works and power. This refers to those who have experienced the goodness of God's Word. Now, again, do you have to be a believer to experience the goodness of God's Word? It's a good question, isn't it? Do you have to be a believer to experience the goodness of God's Word? So, like, can you come to church... On Sunday, and hear a message, and be an unbeliever and get something from it, and maybe even apply the principles of it and see fruit in your life because you did what God's Word told you to do, but yet you are still a what? Unbeliever. Is that possible? Yeah. Yeah, because there are a lot of things in God's Word that basically tell you how to live, And the outcome of that is always going to be positive. Do you understand what I'm saying? So so what I'm I'm trying to do here is I want you to understand that while the first two phrases seem to be expressing somebody who experienced a salvation experience, the last two phrases get a little bit more broader. Do you understand what I'm saying? So here you're seeing somebody who's tasted God's word, but he's also it also refers to those who have experienced the power of God in their midst. Now, especially in their day in the apostolic age, they saw miraculous gifts taking place in their midst all the time. And it may be that they were there when it happened. But does that mean that they're a believer? No, a good example of that, who do you think is a good example of that? Somebody who maybe on a daily basis 
experienced miracles every day, but didn't didn't believe. Yeah, Judas. Judas. In fact, you know what? It's a, a good parallel passage would be to all of what we're talking about here, and it's probably one of the verses I'll give you to look at, is John 15. Jesus says, Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And men gather them, and they are what? Burned. Meaning punishment. So it's possible that there, there, there could be in our midst people who profess, but they don't, they don't have anything coming out of their life. They're not bearing any fruit, so therefore they're not, you know, they're not saved. So, so you see the description here. Look at now at verse 6. Look at their action and the consequences. If they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God, and to put him to an open shame. Now, the first part of verse 4 actually fits with verse 5, for it is impossible for those, if they fall away, to renew again to repentance. Now, what's he talking about here? The phrase fell away or fall away means to turn aside from the true faith. It means to abandon the faith. It's not necessarily meaning abandoning church. But it means to turn your back on the truth of the gospel. Does everybody understand? It's not talking about falling away from church. Because there could be many reasons today why people could decide to go to church. You know, actually, in our community, we have a lot of de-churched people. Not, we have unchurched people, but we have de-churched people. And the reason why they have quit going to church is, and, and, the, and the multitude, we could sit here all day, and, but some of them are, I, I, I didn't care for the fighting. I didn't care for the attitudes. I didn't care for the judgmental spirit. I didn't care for the hoity-toityness, and I had to dress up all the time. Uh, you know, you hear all kinds of reasons why people say they don't go to church, right? I didn't care for the preacher. I didn't care for the power structures. You know, so there's all kinds of reasons why people. Does that mean they lose their salvation? That they, they've given up on their faith? No, a lot of them actually want to experience experience a true church and ex- a true fellowship with others. They're just discouraged because they went through a bad circumstance. Now let me just stop for a moment. Folks, it is a reality. Some churches it is brutal. And 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 I hear what's going on and I and I think about people who go there and I'm thinking, why do they stay? Have you ever felt that way? Like why do they stay? You don't get beat up on every week. Why do they stay? I don't have an answer. Okay? I mean, I don't have any. Maybe you do. Please enlighten me. But I don't understand why they stay. Maybe it's a sense of because grandma's buried in the backyard, you know, in the, in the cemetery. Jerry Falwell used to say years ago, if grandma could leave, she would get up and leave too. Do you know what I'm saying? But she can't. So quit staying there for grandma. You know, because churches do change. So, the, So when we talk about falling away here, we're talking about falling away from the faith. Not church, we're talking about falling away from the faith. Now, 
It means to leave the Christian faith or to become an apostate. When you deny the faith, the implication of the scripture is, is that you become apostate. You become, now that, 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 that's almost like, boy, it's a bad word to call somebody an apostate. Yes, well think about it. First John, over and over, I think Brad referred to this passage last week, over and over in First John, he'll make statements like they came from among us, but they're not of us. Okay? They came from among us, but they're not of us. So it's possible for somebody to come up through the church and then turn away. So that's their action. Now, here's the consequences. The consequence of that is the writer states that it's impossible for such a person to come to repentance again. It's it's impossible for such a person to come to repentance again. Now here the concept of repentance is not just the acknowledgement of doing wrong. Because you could say, well, I know somebody that's turned away from the faith and they recognize that they're doing wrong all the time. That's not that. That's confession. Repentance is a change of mind. And it's a change of mind in acknowledging God as being the one who can save you and redeem you from your sins. Do you understand what I'm saying? That he's the only one who can help you. That's the concept of repentance, is that there's a change. If you want to write the word write repentance and then equals change. Okay? You know, so we're not talking about just confession here. We're talking about changing. So he's saying for such a person who was involved, who experienced all these things, if they decide to give up on faith, they leave, and in their case here, go back to Judaism, it's impossible for them to come to repentance again. Anybody have a question? Because I'm sure that's got to stir up a question. If you want, let me give you the next part of this verse, and then we'll go on. This is because they have publicly shamed Christ by by denying his sufficient sacrifice. So when you look at that phrase there, verse 6, since they crucify for themselves, crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. What's, what's going on here? When they are denying the faith, when they're walking away, they are making a statement that Jesus' death is not enough for their salvation. They're making a statement that what Jesus did on the cross is pure foolishness. And I've heard some, I've, I've talked to individuals in town that says, I can't believe that you would actually believe that somebody would die for your sins. Now, the person who told me that never has professed to be a Christian. It's because we would believe what he thinks is utter foolishness. Wasn't that what Paul said in Corinthians? That the cross through the world is what? Foolishness? So, the reality is, is that when I deny the faith, when I, when I give up, when I walk away from Christianity, when I walk away from Jesus, it's impossible for me to turn back. Because basically I said, what, what Jesus did for me is not enough for me. And when I, when I come to repentance and true repentance, I, I have to come to a place where I recognize this is the part of repentance 
that what Jesus did for me was sufficient. You, do you understand what I'm saying? So like here, I'm hoping that every one of you believes the reality that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient for your forgiveness. I hope you believe that. All right? Because if you don't, you're in trouble. Because if you do not have faith in what he did for you, there is no forgiveness. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? There is no salvation. Now, why do you emphasize that, George? Well, because this has been a scary statistic since 1980s. So for the last 30 years. That more than half of those who claim to be born again who claim to be saved in our churches, are not. Because they're trusting in something else other than Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. They're trusting in their family background. They're trusting in what church they go to. They're trusting in something else. In fact, here even more recently, the younger ones are, are, are even suggesting that they're trusting in that there's more than one way to get there. You know, I believe in Jesus, and I believe he died for me, but I also believe the Buddha is right. Okay? Or Muhammad is right. Or, or what the Sikhs believe is right, or the Eastern mystics. It's at all, we're all ending up in the same place. By the way, let me just stop for you, stop you for a moment. That is a Western concept. The only people who believe that are North Americans. Okay, because if you talk to a Hindu, they do not believe that. If you talk to a Buddhist in Asia, they do not believe that. You talk to a Muslim, they definitely don't believe that, do they? Okay. Uh, so the reality is, is that when we talk about faith here, when you're talking about walking away, you can't, it's, it's not that easy just to come back because, again, you're putting Christ to public shame again by your action. By walking away from him, you're saying, like the crowd that crucified him, you're not the Messiah. You're not it. Questions, because I see some puzzled looks. Yes. That is the difference. Most carnal Christians still believe they're Christians. The difficulty is is that they're living wrong. About carnally minded, I think that's in Ephesians. Well, it might be also in, in Corinthians. It talks about being carnally minded. It's very, I'm going to be honest with you, how can you tell the difference between a carnal Christian and somebody who walks away from the Lord? We can't. He has a belief, and he still has some type of brokenness of what he does. Yeah, they're, they're basically like, I'm done. Yes. And they also had a fear. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're a believer, you know that Jesus isn't going to let you run around like that forever. And every time something bad happens with a carnal Christian, they're immediately saying, I think I know why this is happening. Yeah. God's trying to get my attention. Because we teach you from the very beginning that if you don't behave the way God wants you to behave, if you're of no use to him, what will he do with you ultimately? He'll take you home. Do you know what I'm saying? He can take you home. And, and that has happened. That has happened. People have died prematurely because they were of no use anymore. It's interesting. This week I read 
there was an interesting article by a guy that I read a lot by by the name of Ed Stetzer. He's uh, president of Lifeway Research, which is Lifeway is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist. And he said four trends are going to happen in Christianity. Uh, nominal Christians are going to become, one of them is, is that nominal Christians are going to become increasingly nuns. They're not going to, that means they're not going to wear a habit, and, you know, what it means is they're going to become nothing. That those who profess nominalism will increasingly not be anything, not believe anything. Uh, churches will become stronger in their belief. That means they're going to downsize, but those who are there, really believe what they believe. Because it's going to be, why? Because the culture, it's no longer going to be acceptable to be a Christian. Do do you understand that? It's no longer going to be acceptable to be a Christian and to hold to Christian beliefs. That, That change is happening right now. The cultural change is happening right now. Do you guys realize that? That the reality is, is that cultures change, and so it's going to become a place where you have to believe what you believe. So so some of these questions are going to be very real to us later on, especially when there's a price to be paid for calling yourself a what? A Christian. I mean, we're not facing the things that they face in China at this point, but that might come. You know, that might come. So, all right, let's let's go back to Hebrews here. So the, the consequences is, is that, They've publicly shamed Christ by denying his sufficient sacrifice. So now he's going to give an illustration from nature. The writer is going to give us an illustration from nature to help us to understand this whole point of whether or not somebody truly believes or not. And which is very similar to what Jesus said. You know, about bearing fruit. Also from the parable of the sower. So, I mean, think about it. They're all interconnected here with the phraseology as far as what's productive in your life. So look with me at verse 7 and verse 8. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Okay, so let's look here. First of all, the illustration. First of all, productive ground. A productive field is one that is useful for the one who plants it. So your productivity in your life is based upon your usefulness to the one who planted you. So what does that mean, George? Well, your productivity in your life as a believer is based upon your usefulness to who? The Lord, to God. So, it receives the blessing of God. It receives the blessing of God. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Blessing does not necessarily mean money. Okay? Because you can be truly blessed by God and be poor. All right? And have nothing. So, blessing does not necessarily mean material wealth. All right? Now, but here's the point. Unproductive field is worthless and in danger of God's judgment. Okay, so let's talk about us now. 
Sometimes we wrestle with, do we truly believe or not? Even when you've been saved, you know, I'm, I'm getting close to, I'm 29 years now. You can, you can have times of doubt. Does everybody understand that? The thing you need to look at when you're wrestling is, is the issue is faith. Are you trusting in the Lord? The other issue is, are you useful? Are you useful in your condition? Now, some of you might say, well, you know, I already know that. I'm not, because there's this in my life, and I'm not happy about it. Okay, well, that in itself is a sign that possibly God's still there. Why? Because if you are not concerned about it, that's a warning sign. That's a red flag. Why? Because it's the Holy Spirit who is the one who what? Convicts you. And if the presence of the Holy Spirit is in your life, even if you're, quote, backslidden, to use the old terms, or or, a carnal believer, you're going to be in tune to the fact that you're not doing right. But if you've got somebody who doesn't care, so like if you don't care, that's a warning sign. If your heart is so cold that you don't really care, and we've met people like that, haven't we? They don't care. That's the reality is, is, you know, you can't say they're a believer. In fact, what results is, is what Jesus is saying, they're in danger of judgment, fire. And I think it's always interesting that when we talk about the Christian life, whether it's this writer here or Paul or, or Jesus in the Gospels, it's always paralleled with the whole issue of a productive field and an unproductive field, or a productive plant or an unproductive plant, and that if you have an unproductive plant, you get rid of it and you do what with it? You burn it. So the, the, uh, the picture is judgment. The picture is judgment. Okay? All right, we got to stop because we've got two minutes before the service starts. Grab your coffee.